The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Thank you, Wilfred. Thank you, Sarah. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking the glorious New York City Times Square. This is Fast Money, the big show. I am Dominic Chu in for Melissa Lee tonight. Our trader lineup, Guy Adami, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Bonawin Eisen, as you are seeing in the four-pack there. Tonight on the show, a Baba blowout. Shares of the Chinese tech giant seeing their best day in more than four years. A 10% move in the regular session. What's behind it? And does it give the all clear for the rest of the Chinese internet sector? Plus, rev your engines, engine capital, that is. The activists making a push for a change at Kohl's, but there are at least other bids you should be watching more closely. Class is in session, and Professor Feinerman is here to help you navigate those activist moves. And fueling up, we are heading down to Houston, where the biggest names in the energy game are convening for the World Petroleum Congress. We'll be joined exclusively by Tellurian Chairman Sharif Suki to get his thoughts on the market and where energy is heading from here. But we start with a major market rally. The Dow soaring more than 600 points to start the trading week, rising nearly 2% as you're seeing there. It's its best day since March. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq also seeing monster gains. So with moves like these, what do you look to do to gauge where the markets are going from here? Guy, you sparked this conversation with your pick for one of the biggest market indicators out there in your mind. So what is it that you're watching that gives you the sign of what's to come? Great to have you, Tom. Yeah, and this is just my opinion. Believe me, I'm not suggesting I'm right. But, you know, I think the ARK ETF is something you absolutely have to have up on your screen to sort of gauge what's going on. And listen, Kathy Wood is an absolute genius. And her performance from, I think, 2015 until recently has been uh, incredible in a word. But obviously, over the last six months, things have turned significantly. And if you look at the holdings, and we talk about them all the time, but DocuSign, Tesla, Roku, Teladoc, uh, DraftKings, Unity, and look at some of these names. I think all but two or three of her names right now are north of 20% in terms of peak to trough declines, which is fascinating. I mention it because most of them are very high valuation growth names. And one has to wonder if this is the environment that's going to support those names. I don't particularly think it is. I think it's just a matter of time, in my opinion, before the broader market catch up, catches up to what's going on with the ARK ETF. So, 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 Dan, I mean, it's a good point that there are a lot of cases to be made right now that that it's a big sentiment gauge because so much momentum has been part of the story for those ARC ETFs with the ARC Tech Innovation ETF in particular. Is there anything that you think would be that tell for you about where the market could be headed, at least from a general up or down perspective? 
Yeah, I think Guy makes a great point from a sentiment standpoint. No one's here to pick on Kathy Wood's uh, ARC ETF that has performed poorly of late, given what Guy just said about her long-term track record in picking these themes. Um, from an investment standpoint, you know, I'd throw in there um, SPACs. They trade horribly. Um, I'd throw in recent tech IPOs. They trade horribly. I'd throw in there the recent flash crash that we saw in crypto from highs over the last few weeks. But what I'm most keyed on is not in the stock market, Dom. It really is the fact that the two two-year U.S. Treasury yield has gained 20 basis points in the last month, while the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield has fallen 20 basis points in the last month. I think on the shorter dated, I think it's saying that the Fed has finally admitted something that the rest of the market was feeling about rates, about inflation, while the 10-year is saying that maybe all of you guys who got it right about inflation are wrong about growth next year or the next couple of years here. So to me, I think that's really important. I'm not talking really about the 210 spread. I'm telling you what the two rallying, okay, what might be kind of, um, you know, that thing to combat the inflation expectations versus growth on the longer term. And to me, it spells stagflation. And ultimately, that will be bad for the stock market. That flattening yield curve, the higher short end rates and the lower long end rates is what I've painted in the past as being the Fed's conundrum, the very difficult but special position, Karen Feinerman, it finds itself in east of the rock and west of the hard place. So I wonder in your mind, is it enough for you to say that this is a market that's due for an even more extended pullback than we've seen over the last week and a half or so? Well, I think that for me, the answer is it's not just one market, right? There's two very different parts of the market, or way more than two, but the main ones being the high flyer, giant growth, big multiples, they're going to make money in the future, and the more sort of boring, uh, value-oriented, low PE, not so exciting. To me, that's where I want to be. So I think that market can do actually decently I also find myself in the, in the weird position of agreeing with every single word that Dan said about what's <laughs> happened and what this says for inflation and for what growth or no growth in the future. So to me, I like being in these high, I'm sorry, low PE, high cash earners, and that's where I want to be. And I think so the market broadly, I don't know, but um, that's how I'm positioned. The one thing I did today, though, was I did cover some IGV, which pains me to do so just because it has moved probably about 18%, 17% from the peak, which is a very big move. So the risk reward has changed there. It's not that I'm gung-ho high flyers. I'm not. Well, or as you're looking at that chart right there that you just saw with the, 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 uh, the Vanguard kind of ETF that tracks many of these types of moves there, the iShares expanded, I'm sorry, tech software, the IGV. You can see just that move on the right-hand side. Decent. So, so again, uh, maybe covering some shorts there isn't a bad idea given the nice profit run that you've had. I, I wonder, Bonowin, as I turn to you, to, t to take a look at maybe the indicators that you, from, from your perspective, are seeing as the, as the ones that we should all be keying on. Is, is it more macro-focused, or are you kind of looking at some of the same broad thematic elements that Guy and Karen and Dan have just listed out? Um, so I think, uh, so Guy, he was being modest. He, he said he wasn't sure if he's right. He's absolutely right. I'll go on ahead and stick my hand up and, and, and have his back there. I think that ARK ETF does speak a little bit to like the retail presence in the market. And we've had many discussions around whether it's retail or it's institutional. And, and the answer is yes. 
It's both. Both have now proven to be formidable opponents and participants in this market, and we should have a pulse on all of them. So the, I think the ARC ticks that box in terms of the retail presence. Dan then talked about the 210 spread. That talks about our macroeconomic situation, uh, and that's going to cue a lot of institutional investors. Right, and Karen kind of brought those two things together. I'm gonna to try to round that conversation out with a chart that I'm looking at, which is actually high yield, uh, high yield spreads. You can look at it in terms of the absolute spread to swaps, or you can look at it in terms of uh, CDS spreads, which have actually kind of blown out a little bit and people have been purchasing those a bit more. But this high yield spread essentially is, what is the institutional next best option? Right, so you have the momentum trades that are all in, in the arc and the new wave, the new economy. You have Karen's uh, uh, names that are low multiple but high growth or, or high free cash flow generating companies. Uh, you have the financials that have, and, and some of the builders that are gonna key off of that 210 spread. And then you have a lot of macroeconomic hedge funds that are gonna say, okay, well, I'm gonna invest at this in, in this relative to that. And the that is credit. And as you've seen that credit spread blow out, I think you've seen a, a rotation out of some of the more speculative pockets of the equities market because, as Karen said, the risk reward is simply better in that other sector. So, so Bonowin, can I follow up on that? I, I'm just looking at, you know, one particular move here in the iShares iBox High Yield Corporate Bond ETF. It's a mouthful. The ticker is HYG, but it basically tracks the high yield credit market, the junk bond credit market. It's seen a massive sell off over the course of the last couple of weeks. But then we're seeing a couple days now worth of at least positivity. Do you feel as though that chart that you just showed with those credit spreads as high as they've been in months here, that, that the market has sold off enough that this is your leading indicator that risk appetite can return in a more constructive way? Uh, I, I think it certainly can, but I, I don't, I think the, the high tides raising all boats situation is kind of uh, getting a little long in the tooth, and that's what I'm getting at. I think you're going to see a lot more relative value where it's one vis-a-vis -vis the other, and I think these, these charts are kind of pointing to that. All right, so the macro side of things and the micro covered as well here. Let's move on to today's rally. Just the latest in a big move in a week plus of volatility. And our next guest says not to let your guard down just yet. Do not become too complacent. Let's bring in Mandy Zhu of Credit Suisse to help us break it all down. Mandy, great to have you with us as always to kind of take us through a little bit of the signpost that you are seeing. What exactly is the market telling you right now about what that next leg could be? Sure. Hey, Don, it's great to be here. Um, so I, I would say what really stands out in the options market right now is not just that volatility is higher, which it is if you look at the VIX index, uh, but many of the other metrics are actually approaching the record high that we saw back uh, last March during the depth of the pandemic sell-off. So for example, if you look at the cost of puts versus calls, so a measure of demand for downside protection, uh, that is nearing the record high that we saw last March, which is very surprising given that last March, you know, VIX was at 80. Now VIX is up, but it's still, you know, relatively um, much lower. And obviously large mar March, um, S&P had a much bigger sell-off. Uh, so in terms of, you know, what is driving that move, I would say three things. So obviously, with a new variant, Omicron, um, you know, a lot of uncertainty regarding that. Um, but in addition, I would say this hawkish turn from the Fed, that really caught a lot of investors off guard last week. Um, and then last but not least, I do think seasonality has a, a part to do uh, to play in this. You know, we're coming into the end of the year traditionally a 
you know, a time where liquidity is a bit challenging uh, and where moves in the market can get a little bit more exaggerated. So I think kind of put all this together, um, you know, this is why some of the risk metrics in the option market are as high as they are. So, so Mandy, I, I wonder, though, because we try to juxtapose that to, to many of the statistics that we often cite and have for years about this seasonably strong aspect of equity markets, specifically between Thanksgiving and the end of the year, not to mention that so-called Santa Claus rally that kind of takes us into the right. first part of the next year. But you have to square that with the liquidity situations you were talking about. What exactly then is the strategy, given that you feel as though traditionally it's supposed to be good, but that you can't let your guard down because the liquidity may not provide for that kind of support going into this particular year end? So I would say liquidity works both ways, right? In a thin liquidity market, moves in either direction can become exaggerated. So liquidity becoming lower does not necessarily mean that the market will sell off. Uh, but certainly this year, I think, kind of go, going to the year end with the macro backdrop that we have, what we are seeing is even more than usual uh, a pullback from investors. You know, a lot of people, especially if they have done well uh, this year, uh, you know, <laughs> investors are cutting uh, back on risk um, and, and really kind of trying to lock in year-to-date gains uh, and trying to start afresh next year. Um, but in terms of, you know, strategies that we like in this environment, I think, you know, looking at option strategies where you're net selling volatility make a lot of sense to us, given how dislocated, you know, the metrics I talked about um, have become. So, for example, if you are cautious on the market, looking at, you know, buying a put spread uh, and selling a call to fund it, this type of structure where you're net short ball um, make a lot of sense to us. Amanda, you, you mentioned some, some really good points that I tend to agree with in terms of uh, volatility and skew. I think you kind of spoke to the, the demand for downside risk. And you hit on it a little bit on your last point. But in terms of like what, what type of strategies would you suggest investors take? You, you mentioned uh, like some, some collar type of situations. But what do you think about one by two put spreads or, or put spreads as a way to kind of sell that skew uh, and, and get yourself net short of all? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that type of strategy. Um, so we like it. So if you're looking for protection, you know, on the S and P one by two put spread, take advantage of the expensiveness of skew or protection that I, I mentioned. Um, but as a more direct short volatility play, we also like actually buying one by two put spreads on the VIX. So it is a way to position for a normalization in volatility uh, in, in the VIX while also taking advantage of you know the expensiveness of VIX options right now. It's the one thing you can make a point on there, that the downside volatility has led to elevated options prices for that put protection. Mandy Zhu of Credit Suisse, thank you very much. Always great. Get your thoughts. Have a nice evening. Thank you. All right, let's trade this, folks. I, I mean, okay, Karen, I will start with you. Some great points. The elevated mm -hmm. volatility means that there is relative value or the, the implied volatility of some of those put options have given you a chance to maybe be able to capture a little bit of relative expensiveness by selling them. Is that the way that you would approach this coming year, even though we always talk about this idea that things are pretty good between, you know, November to December? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you want to lock in gains, that that sort of makes sense to me. The put spread one with uh, selling the out of the money call to to fund the put spread makes more sense to me. Just the idea of a one by two put spread. I did a one by two trade early in my career. I hope it's the worst trade of my career. It certainly is until now, and I just don't love that uh, you know potential for tremendous risk. The put spread with the collar that's easier because I am long. And if the market really rallies hard, okay, that's uh, 
Um, I, I don't know, that I feel more comfortable with. But I guess my portfolio, I don't think of it, how's it gonna do for year end? Cause I'm hanging on to all of it for year end into next year, I got a further horizon than that. All right, so we're at least constructed from Karen's point of view. All right, guys, we'll leave it there for right now. Coming up on the show, we are breaking down the latest in the energy space with the chairman of Tellurian. You don't want to miss that exclusive interview live from the World Petroleum Congress that's coming up. But first, we are hitting two names going in different directions today. Alibaba and Lucid, both with big moves, as you can see there, will tell you why when Fast Money returns after this commercial break. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Alibaba topping the tape after announcing it is restructuring its e-commerce businesses and tapping a new chief financial officer. The stock ended the day. You can see they're 10% higher. It's best day since June of 2017. But shares are still down. Get this 50% so far this year. It's been rough for Chinese Internet companies overall. So if you take a look at this particular trade for Baba, it's, I mean, we put it in context for people on purpose because a 10% move is massive. Yes, it is, but it's still lost half its value over the course of the last 11 months or so. I guess my question maybe to you, Guy, is do you feel as though there's a point at which Chinese internet stocks like Alibaba can become value plays and not the proverbial market falling knife? Yeah, that's something we struggle with now since basically Halloween. If, if you go back and look, and when I say Halloween, I mean Halloween of Last year, when this was, I think, trading $317 or so, a lot of people tried to make that call. I think it's a trading opportunity, and I'll point out to Friday's low, I think it traded down to 108.70, reversed a little bit, traded 70 million shares, which is about two and a half, three times normal volume. All those are the earmarks of a potential capitulatory bottom and a potential bounce. By the way, you've seen incredible bounces in this name for the last 13 months, each of which have been opportunities to sell. I think we're on the verge of one again. I think this stock could easily trade to the mid-130s and will still be in a 13-month downtrend. So I would look for a potential move to 135 and you sell it again. This is a trade, not an investment. So, so Dan, I, I wonder if, if that's the way you feel about this. Is, is it at all a, a stock picker's market when it comes to Chinese Internet? Or do we still have to kind of play this whole Chinese Communist Party, anti-big tech regime that we're in? And, and the, these are basically, it doesn't matter what it is, it doesn't matter if it's JD or Baidu or NetEase or anybody else. Th these are all kind of sell-on-rally type situations. 
No, I think you bring up a great point. When you look at the headlines and why it rallied, I didn't think that the business model was the problem here, Dom, right? So it really is speaking to the fact that the Chinese Communist Party was really trying to take a bite out of their tech champions, and they've done that. And, you know, at its lows last week, Alibaba was down 65%. When Guy talked about Halloween 2020, this was nearly a trillion-dollar market cap um, company. So to me, you know, do they delist? Do they go to Hong Kong? What happens here? We just saw that with Didi, it just seems to be a very uncertain situation. I have to assume that there is plenty of value here and that the Chinese consumer that has actually been the tailwind for many of these trends, why Tencent and NetEase and Alibaba and Didi, why they have such great futures in that country going forward, right? Because they don't have competition from the likes of our version of Alibaba or Tencent, that sort of thing. So to me, yeah, I think there has to be value here. It's really hard, though, because you could have said that at any point over the last six months or so, and you'd be dead wrong. All right, so meanwhile, guys, we've got a, speaking of competition, we've got a buzzkill happening on Lucid right now. The EV maker is getting subpoenaed by the SEC for documents related to its SPAC deal. The shares plunged, as you can see there, by as much as 20%, closed the day down more than 5%. Dan, I mean, you flagged this story here. I only bring up, you mentioned competition. Lucid is in a very growingly hyper competitive industry. A lot of names getting a lot more attention in electric vehicles. Just how much does this news really change the investment thesis for Lucid? That's a great, another great question, Dom. Look, you show up here and you come to Fast Money, you got all these great questions. I mean, the fact I'm of the matter here, is, guys, I got you know, inquiring minds want to know, Dan. Well, yeah, but you know, we were talking about Rivian, okay, a few weeks ago when that company went public and Lucid had just shipped their first um, car. And we were saying there's really no way to back into any near term valuation that makes sense. So this has nothing to do with the fundamentals. This has to do with the structure and the way that this company came public. So to me, it shouldn't have much to do with it. I will tell you on Saturday, I went to the showroom in the West Village in New York City and I looked at this Lucid Air, this car that they're shipping here. Man, this thing is hot. But it's at a really high end price point, that sort of thing. I mean, they got a great car there. Um, it's got 500 uh, mile range and it's a high end luxury car. Again, has nothing to do with how the company came public for your SPAC and none of us will know that either. Bonawin, are you excited about EVs? If, if so, wh where exactly is it? I mean, is it is it like the 800-pound gorilla? Is it Tesla still? Or are we talking names like Rivian? I, I think that Morgan Stanley was just out with a note today saying that Rivian provides the real kind of competitive edge against Tesla that some investors may be looking for. You know, um, hmm. I think in terms of uh, the, the, the secular trend, I think there's enough room for plenty. I, I still think Tesla has the branding and although it is a battery company and we've got the boring company and we've got this, this multifaceted company that, that, that's really leading innovation, at the end of the day, it still is a consumer brand. And I think until that is kind of, um, we kind of shake the tree on that and we're able to kind of displace them in something else, I still do think that they are at, they are at the forefront. If you add in the fact, we've talked about all these other names that have sold off pretty aggressively, Tesla has also taken a plunge as of late. So, you know, when you're talking about risk reward, you know, this is a tried and true. We, we're having a hard time backing into valuations for these companies that we, that we don't know a lot about. We have a lot more data now around Tesla. That would still be, you know, the, the first in my list of investments in that all space. Right. Tesla up top there. We are just getting going here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next on the show. High energy. Oil prices jumping after a rough month. So what's next for the commodity? 
We're live from the World Petroleum Congress next. Plus, separate or sell? Coal's climbing higher as an activist investor pushes for a boost. So, Professor Karen is laying down a trade school on the matter. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of the special purpose acquisition company taking Donald Trump's media company public are soaring in the after hours trade. You can see they're up roughly 6%. Let's get straight out to Kayla Tausche, who's got all the details on what exactly is behind the move. Kayla. Well, Dom, it turns out that President Trump's media company is going to be getting a new and formerly high-profile CEO in Devin Nunes, a Republican lawmaker who announced that he would be retiring from Congress at the end of this month because of an opportunity that he could not turn down. And we've just learned that opportunity is as chief executive of former President Trump's new media company. That company is was expected to go public with that uh, ticker that you just uh, noted, the SPAC, uh, but we have learned at CNBC that that SPAC is being investigated by the Securities and Exchange Commission and FINRA. Uh, more on that as we have it. But in a statement after hours, former President Trump says of Nunes, he is a fighter and a leader. He will make an excellent CEO and that he understands that we must stop the liberal media and big tech from destroying the freedoms that make America great. So Republican lawmaker Devin Nunes to join President Trump's uh, media company as CEO when he retires from Congress. We will see what's next for that company. Don, back to it's you. Certainly, it's certainly, Kayla, will drive some interest in that particular company, the ticker as well. Oftentimes in the last few months here, it's been one of the most searched tickers, one of the top 50 on CNBC.com, given some of the interest on in what's next for that Trump SPAC and everything else happening. Thank you very much, Kayla, for that. Uh, I wonder, Karen Feinerman, I, I, I'm going to turn to you quickly for this one, because this is a company, like I said, that gets a good amount of attention. It's already up another 3% from where we just showed it before Kayla's report. What's your take on digital world, uh -huh. given this Nunez news? Well, if you look at their, they put out a, uh, they did a pipe, a billion dollar pipe, and they put out some sort of, I don't know if they call projections. It's more like total addressable market. And they make some assumptions that are, I, I don't know. I mean, at the moment, there's not a lot, there's not a lot of there there. Not that there couldn't be, but it's just interesting that, um, they're getting a huge valuation on, so far, not a lot. I don't know if they're going to get it together before they actually close the merger. I'm not really sure. This is, this is one of the crazier ones I've ever seen, and the warrants to me just seem oddly priced. 
relative to the stock by a lot. I understand that you know you can't buy the warrants and short the stock. That's not an actual like a, a true hedge because they're slightly different securities. But it's crazy. I think that there are some dislocations, no doubt, b between the underlying and some of the derivatives that, that go along with it. Uh, I, 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 I would turn to you, Dan Nathan, right now. Uh, what do you think? Is this, is this kind of something that you are keeping a close eye on? Is there anything bigger in terms of ripple effects from this Nunes uh, CEO yeah, undertaking? Yeah, the, ripple effects, the ripple effects is very on brand for, for a Trump organization to have one of the worst uh, public servants of the last you know, few decades join as the CEO of this company. Um, and, you know, I, when I think about this, the SEC is investigating this deal. I don't think this deal is ever going to happen, to be very frank, because one of the ways that SPACs work is you can't identify the target that you want to go after beforehand. It seems very clearly they did. The other thing that's really important is we don't know where the money, where the investors came from. So the disclosures, who you know, Putin could be buying this thing. You know, I mean, like the things, this deal is never going to happen my opinion all right so clock a ticket right now here people and i'll just say grifters are gonna grift and that's what's going on here all right the market's always made up of buyers and sellers <laughs> nathan so we'll keep a close eye on that on digital world acquisition corp uh, devin nunez becoming the ceo of trump media and technology group here all right switching gears from that side of things to oil prices heating up while natural gas prices send shivers through the market cold you can see they're down 12 percent the biggest players in energy are gathering in houston for the world petroleum congress right now to discuss the future of the oil and gas industry of course if there's an oil and gas story brian sullivan's all over it he's there joined by tullerian's co-founder and executive chairman sharif suki brian all over to you dom and i'll bet you if you did one of your famous ticker searches tell would have been up there at some point this year because the stock is up 158 percent this year Sharif Suki it's great to see you thanks great. for joining us here and back in person it's great um before we get into macro issues natural gas was five and a half almost six bucks briefly now it's at three and a half what that what's happened it's very simple in this country we have a reserve of a hundred years all we have to do is drill when the price signal tells you to go drill, everybody starts drilling, and very quickly you reestablish the balances. So, 18 months ago, we had uh, gas prices of $1.70, no signal to drill. As soon as they went to $5, everybody's drilling, and here we are. So, what leads? Does natural? We always say oil and the natural gas. Does natural gas lead oil in any way? What's the relationship? So, generally speaking, natural gas historically has been the bad news. I have a discovery that's a good news. I have gas. That's a bad news. But for the first time, I think historically, on a global basis, gas prices are two and a half times the level of oil prices. So the, the prices that you're getting for gas in China, India, and even in Europe now are the equivalent of $200 a barrel. And oil is trading at $75 a barrel. I don't think that has ever happened before. So today, because gas has some attributes that are attractive, it is leading the charge, uh, which you would expect now, because at the margin, they are interchangeable, as gas prices will weaken and people will replace it with oil. So I expect gas prices globally to come down a little bit and oil prices to come up a little bit. I mean, it's amazing. It's 2021, and we're talking about power plants in China and elsewhere going back to oil or even coal. 
they're or swapping coal for oil. What year is this? They have done as much coal as they can, which is coal is almost as expensive as gas today on a global basis. So, and if you look at what happened in New Delhi last week, where they had to shut down schools, and no power. Uh, 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 because because of the pollution, because the pollution was so bad, they told government officials stayed home, kids stayed home. We're shutting down everything for a week. So, if you look at pictures of New Delhi today, it's appalling. We've talked. We were in the UK a couple of weeks ago talking about the potential for England's energy crisis this winter. I hope we are wrong. It's not looking like we will be. Europe right now buying natural gas on the spot market at what, 22, 25? Close to 30. Close to 30. How did Europe get here? And where does this go? So they got, like everybody else, they got complacent. We had low prices for a long time. Everybody thought, remember, 18 months ago, we're talking about lower for longer. Nothing could have been further from the truth. So everybody got lulled by that. And we're facing a world today where 7 billion people in emerging countries, soon to become 9 billion people, will refuse not to emerge. And for them to become to the same level of standards of living as the West, Europe and North America, we need just a 50% of the level. We need to add 50% to the energy uh, supply in the world. It is a very, very hard task. Well, I'm going to wrap it up with this because this is fast money. And so your stock has been, I mean, hot. And you probably won't comment directly on it. But LNG, I assume, is going to be a big part of that growth. Your valuation is, you know, has gone up with the price, Sharif. Is there still a reason for investors to be bullish and optimistic on Tellurian? It is not even the first inning. Because you can buy gas in the United States, as you said, three and a half. Uh, liquefied for a dollar and sell it for $25 on the water. The plant play, pays for itself in less than two years at the moment. It's the warm-up. Not it's even the first inning. Not even the first Sharif inning. Suki, real pleasure to see you here at the uh, World Petroleum Congress. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. So, the, hey, Dom Chu, so there you go. He's saying it's not even the first inning and throwing around some big numbers as the world can pretty much gobble up all the American gas that they can get and probably could use a little more, to be honest. There still is an immense appetite for those particular products. Brian Sullivan, thank you so much. And, of course, the Sharif Suki as well. Uh, let, let's trade it. Uh, Guy Adami, I'll go to you first. We've talked a lot about oil and gas companies and capital discipline, right? N- not spending, preserving dividends, wanting to do buybacks, that sort of thing. Is oil and gas still a story where you can just go up and drill and get more product out? Or is it much more about that capital discipline these days? Well, Tellurian would suggest, you know, that is the story. This is your opportunity. So for in, th- in this instance, I think it is. Plus, by the way, with this stock specifically, it's a pretty big decarbonization play as well, which is going to fit into the ESG-themed uh, funds out there. So this works. I think that's a really interesting company that we've talked about a number of times. I know Jim Cramer has as well. In terms of oil continuing to be a story, Tim Seymour talks about this all the time. Companies are much better run now than they were a few years ago much more disciplined with how they're spending their money, which is a good thing. And although oil has been really difficult, obviously, over the last month and a half, and kudos to Dan Nathan, who's called that move, I don't think the oil story is over by any stretch. If you look at OIH quickly, traded down to those prior April lows, sorted down to the August lows, and we are seemingly have bounced. I think the OIH is interesting here, specifically both Halliburton and Schlumberger. 
You know, Karen, the, 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 the words I've heard a lot more over the course of the last several months have been commodity and super cycle in the same sentence. Uh, do, do you believe that we're there? Is this is this like the early stage or middle innings of, of what could be a, a, a big run up in fossil fuel prices overall, kind of like we saw back in, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14? I guess it would depend. That's a great question, but I guess it depends on what you think the economy is going to do. There's a lot of moving parts. What OPEC's going to do? Are we going to allow more production? I don't know. Are we going to? Are these companies going to lose the discipline they had? And if so, then you can see us getting more, you know, more supply. And as commodities move, they're very, you know, price sensitive to supply demand dynamic. But I don't have a lot of exposure to the to the space. For me, it's entirely in the OIH. I do think that. We will continue to see, for a little while anyway, oil hang in there. And so the, the OIH has a lot of catching up to do relative to the commodity. So that's how I've played it. But it's not a very big position for me. All right, uh, Dan, Nathan, uh, over to you. I mean, do you feel as though this oil and no. gas story has legs? No, I don't. I, and it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning of the show. If you really fear that we have this situation where growth is slowing, we've seen the dollar rally, we're seeing rates going higher. The last time we saw that, Dom, was when the Fed was coming off of their zero interest rate policy, and they were obviously tapering um, before that, and crude oil got cut in half, you know, and the dollar had a big rally. Um, so the do the Dixie at 96 and a half is kind of getting back on its horse a little bit. The two-year rate is rallying. I'm not sure how far the 10 years going. I just don't see tremendous growth prospects in 2022 that should bring gold, uh, bring crude up to that $100 level that a lot of people were calling for when it was just at 80 bucks. So to me, I see more of like a 55 to 75 sort of range. All right. That does it for that oil and gas trade. Coming up on the show, sell or separate the advice one activist firm has for Kohl's e-commerce business. The details on that particular campaign coming up. Plus, you traded, we listened. CNBC debuting a new next generation index covering some of the hottest, most talked about names by millennials and Gen Z investors. We are digging into that next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money is back in just two minutes. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out coal shares cashing in big time on news that an activist investor is looking for a major shakeup at the company. Leslie Picker joins us now with the very latest on what that shakeup could entail. Leslie. Yeah, Dom, this is a new activist investor in Kohl's. For those of you out there who feel like they've seen this movie before, the name is Engine Capital. That's different than Engine Number 1, which took on Exxon earlier this year. Engine Capital's Arnaud Adler has about $400 million under management. Shares were up about 5.4% today on the revelation that Engine is pushing CEO Michelle Gass to consider strategic alternatives, including separating the e-commerce business, as Sachs is doing and as Macy is considering, uh, Engine would also like the entire uh, entirety of Kohl's to be sold to private equity. It's kind of one of those two strategic alternatives. Kohl's reached an agreement with four other activist investors in April, adding two of their nominees to the board. That group, which is which owned just shy of 10% at the time, had been more focused on compensation, inventory, and monetizing real estate. Engine Capital's Adler believes that Kohl's e-commerce business alone could fetch more than $12.5 billion as a standalone company. In response, Kohl's says that in a statement to CNBC, quote, the Kohl's board and management team continuously examine 
all opportunities for maximizing shareholder value. Our strong performance this year demonstrates that our strategy is gaining traction and driving results. Today's bump definitely helps that uh, outperformance for the S&P for the year. Cole's CEO Gas will be on closing bell on Wednesday. Down. All right, Leslie Picker, thank you very much for that. So when it comes to activist investors, not all bids are created equal. Luckily, one of our traders is here to help you navigate these types of activist scenarios. Trade School is in session. Karen, give us the scoop. Should somebody like Michelle Goss over at Kohl's be worried about a campaign like this? Well, that's a great question, Dom. So when I, when I see an activist surface, there's a few things that I look for. One, the first thing, how big of a stake do they have? How much skin do they really have in the game? And here, Engine, as Leslie pointed out, it's not, a, it's not a huge position. It's one and change percent. The second is, what actions can they take? What does the corporation's bylaws and charter allow them to do? In this case, all 11 seats would be up at the annual meeting. So that, that's a very significant move if you want to nominate a whole slate of directors. It's not easy to do. You can do it. It's not easy to win. And then the third thing that's really important is the history of this activist. The better the history, the more success they've had in the past, the more likely they are to get sort of people piling on, which will help them in their case to take some action or get board seats or whatever it is. However, in this particular case, Engine is not the story. The other activist group from last year, Marcellus and uh, I believe it's Legion and Anchor, that's the story. They still own a very significant stake. In fact, I looked, they paid higher than here for their stock. They have experience in the space. And looking at the, the sort of fine print of their standstill agreement, their non-disparagement agreement ends, I believe, December 13th. So I guess that means MUD's allowed to fly if, you know, if they're inclined to do that. Also, they have to, if they want to nominate more directors, they have to do that by January 13th. That's the more interesting part to me. So if we don't see that by January 13th, I don't think Engine can do anything really except sort of, you know, make noise. So I actually find the situation compelling looking back and seeing that the, the, the Marcellus Group paid higher than here for part of their stake. And business has been pretty good since then. So it's an interesting situation. And it sounds like, given, given the timeline you've laid out, Karen, that we're still kind of early on, there could be a lot more you know, development-wise over the course of the next several weeks here. Karen, thank you for that. Now, Bonowin, I, I turn to you. What do you think about this situation? Does, does anything get done in that timeline that Karen just laid out? Well, a couple of things stood out to me. So um, first was the relatively muted stock response, right? I think they're up 4 or 5% on the back of the news, which... I would have expected this to be, you know, a bit more, a bit more, um, see a bit more flow through in terms of the stock price and a reaction. And the other thing that really jumped out to me was the focus on e-commerce and real estate, right? And, and if you really think about those two aspects of the business, those have been very highlighted through this whole COVID pandemic situation. They have been the darling, so to speak, uh, of this lockdown. And so when you kind of like wrap all of that together, I think the fact that you know, the stock price hasn't really reacted the way that you would think. It may point to somewhat of a myopic view in terms of how they're going to, to go about with the restructuring. So, you know, I, I, I get it. It just seemed a, a bit more, a bit short-sighted to me. And that is why I think I saw the follow-through I did in the stock, albeit um, I think Karen makes quite a few good points there, particularly with the, uh, that Marcellus group. All right. No doubt that big interview with Michelle Goss over at Kohl's will be a must watch tomorrow on Closing Bell. Thanks very much, guys. Coming up on the show, Toll Brothers gearing up to report earnings tomorrow. And that has options traders piling in 
We'll tell you how they're playing that name coming up next. We're watching Fast Money live from the NASDAQ market site right here in Times Square. We are back right after this. Welcome back. This is Fast Money. Check out what's happening with Toll Brothers right now, building some solid gains to kick off the week. You can see they're up nearly 4%. The home builder is set to report earnings tomorrow after the closing bell, and options traders are betting that the results could take a toll on the stock's recent rally. Yeah, I did it there. Mike Coe joins us now to break down the action. Mike. Hi there, Dom. Yeah, so Toll Brothers, we saw it trade over three times the average daily options volume, very close to four, in fact. Calls did outpace puts slightly, and we are seeing right now that the options market is implying a move of just under 7% higher or lower after they report. That's approximately in line with the average over the course of the last eight quarters. However, the two most active options were the January 60 puts, nearly 700 of those traded for about $1.20 a contract. And the second most active were actually the weekly 70 strike puts. Buyers of both of those puts are obviously betting that the stock is going to fall below those respective strike prices by their respective expiration dates. That could mean below 70 by the end of the week and below 60 by January expiration on the third Friday of that month. All right, Mike Coe with the options action there on Toll Brothers. Let's trade it. Dan, Nathan, I go to you. Is this something that you would be looking for action in? Well, it's, mortgage rates have not ticked up too much, right? We just talked about that two-year, um, 10 years not going anywhere right now. Um, you know, we saw that Lennar move last week. I think Goldman upgraded it. it the charts look very constructive. So um, to me, you know, the fundamentals and the technicals possibly line up. It's just not a trade that I'm playing for. I'm looking for a reversion in some of the, some of, just at least in some of the trends that we've seen in housing over the last 18 months or so. All right. It's a 48% gain, by the way, over the course of the last year. Thanks very much for that, guys. For more options action, be sure to tune in to the full show Friday afternoons, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up next, your final trades. Keep it right here. All right, it is time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Karen, to you first. Yeah, thanks for being here, Dom. To me, Kohl's is interesting. Whether or not the activists get something done, there's pressure on the cell gas, and she's a good CEO. And it's cheap. So, Kohl's. All right. Bono and Eisen. Uh, given all the volatility, add some defensive posture to your portfolio. XLV. All right. Dan Nathan. Yeah, Domino. About a month ago, Shake Shack had a huge gap after Q3 earnings. It just looked like it made a double bottom at 69. Play that one back towards 90. All right, the Shake Shack up 7% after hours. And Guy Adami. Love Brian's interview, Tellurian, T-E-L-L. All right, T-E-L-L. Thanks very much, guys. It was a pleasure being with you here for Fast Money. Keep it right here because Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.